Amen. I want to start with this phrase that we'll hear more from later, but repeat after me. What then will there be for us? It's a little trickier than you thought when you heard it. What then will there be for us? So again, you don't have to say it anymore. You did great. You already passed that test. What, a certain thing, right, then sometime in the future, will there be for us? We'll get to this question. This is a really important question as we approach Revelation again. You'll notice on the screen, though, if you want to go back to the graphic, uh, we are, uh, it's a little different. We've still got our blood moon, still very intimidating and scary, uh, but no longer does it say Revelation, and then how it all ends in small, it says, how it all ends, end times in the Gospels. Um, We're going to continue in Revelation, don't get concerned, we will finish the book, but we're taking a little uh, diversion, right, Uh, to quote Moana, my apologies, I couldn't help myself. Um, And we're doing it for a few reasons. Um, One, uh, while Eric is here uh, this Sunday, he's going to be gone the next Sunday and the following Sunday, um, and Eric is giving uh, an interpretation of the book of Revelation that is, and he didn't actually mention this in any of his sermons, I don't think, the oldest, or at least a form of the oldest, earliest uh, interpretation of Revelation that we know of. If you go back to documents into the early church, pre-4th century, pre-300s, the vast majority of believers would have interpreted Revelation almost identically to how Eric has been preaching it. I, however, tend to interpret it more like the people in the 3rd and 4th century do. So there's a little bit of a disconnect there, uh, and I tripped probably providentially as I said that. Um, But we don't want to get any confusion Because while there are multiple ways of reading Revelation, I think it's really important for us to be able to read it coherently. And so if you come up with a way of approaching the book, you should approach it consistently throughout. And so we didn't want to get much confusion there. It's also, however, very important to get an understanding of all the different viewpoints and be able to glean value from each of them. Where Eric and I don't disagree at all is in what Revelation does to us as we read it faithfully in our best ways to serve the Lord. Another reason why we are diverting out of the book just for a brief moment is that Revelation is not an isolated book. It is the end of a book. Does that make sense? It's not an isolated book. It is the end of the book. And so if you only read the last chapter of a book to understand what happens, do you really understand what happens? Revelation is far from the only spot in Scripture that talks about the end of all things, that talks about the day of the Lord, that talks about the age to come. It's throughout the prophets. It's written in the Psalms and in the Gospels, in the words of Jesus. It's also everywhere. And Jesus is the one who gives the book of Revelation. Right? If you go to Revelation chapter 1, read the very first verse. It says this. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. 
And so in order to read Revelation well, if Jesus, while he was living on earth amongst us, walking amongst his disciples, talked about the end, and then he appeared later to John and talked about the end, we would expect to see some integration, some correlation, some consistency, some coherency. And so we want to take just a brief, again, move, we'll call it a, a diversion of parentheses, uh, out of the book of Revelation so that we can actually read Revelation better. Does that make sense? So for the next few weeks, this is what we're going to be doing. And so let's go to the Gospels. Let's go to the Gospels. And I want to start at the beginning of the Gospels where Jesus begins to talk about the end. Now, you can, you, can, you can interpret it a few different ways. The first time Jesus talks about the end, he's kind of talking about the end every time he talks about the kingdom of God. Because there's really no discrepancy. Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is near. Or in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven. Now, the end will look the same as the way that it's being initiated, just in completion. So anytime he's talking about the kingdom of God, he's really exposing us to what the end will look like. But there are times when he talks more specifically about it. The first time, arguably, in chapter 13, we don't have to turn there. It's the parable of the wheat and the tares. Raise your hand if you're familiar with this one. A sower goes out and he sows good seed and the wheat starts to grow, but the servants go out and they find a whole bunch of weeds growing amongst the wheat. And his servants go to the master and they say, what happened? I thought you sowed good seed. And the master says, well, our enemy must have done this. Let them all grow and at the time of the harvest, cut them all down the tares will go into the fire and the wheat will turn to grain. Jesus is definitely talking about the end here, but we're not going to read that one today because of a few reasons. One, it's coming immediately after the parable of the sower. And so it's primarily about how we understand our present age in light of the age to come. The age to come informing how do we interpret God, you should judge and cut down and excommunicate and we should judge and cut down and excommunicate Everyone, right away, he's saying, no, let them grow together. I will do that at the end. So is it talking about the end? Yes. But it's also tucked in the, way of, uh, in the midst of a number of other parables. And by the time we get to chapter 19, there's a shift, I believe, where Jesus approaching his end, going to Jerusalem like we talked so much about during, Ad, or, um, during Lent, begins to talk about the end as well. And the disciples start to pick up on this and they start to ask a few questions about how they ought to understand these things. Chapter 19 is where the shift happens. And again, another story I'll just summarize that we're not going to read all the way through. A rich man comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, keep the law. And he says, I've done it. And Jesus is like, slick, you did. Go and sell your possessions and follow me, this one thing you lack. And the rich man, who is very confident in himself and in his righteousness, grows very sad and he turns away. And Jesus says, it is hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And we'll pick up here in chapter 19, verse 27, if we put this on the screen. Peter answered him, 
We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Let me pause right there. Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What will be there for us? And all of a sudden, Peter and the other disciples who've been following Jesus in the world start to gather that they might not get rich. <laughs> it's a realization all of us following Christ have to come to, right? I know it all too well. They realize we might not get rich. What then is this for? What then will there be for us? We've left all of these things. And I think it, it brings us to an interesting moment where we have to kind of ask with ourselves and amongst ourselves and to ourselves, why do we care about the book of Revelation and the way things end at all? Why do we care, right? I've got today to live in. Jesus himself says, don't worry about tomorrow, for today has troubles enough of its own. Why do we care how it ends? And all of us are going to have our own answers, but I think all of them boil down to these two major concerns that each of us carries in our soul. Again, this is not complete, but this is at least what I think they kind of boil into. Why do we care about the end? One is justice. We care about justice. David Henney will do a really good job pointing out to you, as others, that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there is no distinction between judgment and justice. They're the same thing. Righteousness and justice. We want to see those who have done wicked, those who have done cruel, get what they deserve. We also want to feel like when we've been stolen from, we ought to be repaid. Which leads us to the other point that I think we all carry. So on the one hand, why do we care so much about the end? All of us want justice to some extent, usually as long as we're not looking inwardly. <clears throat> we also want a reward, right? We've had to endure this long day's work, this lifetime of labor. Is there some reward that I get at the end of it? Jesus. We've left everything for you. All those people deserve justice. We've done all this work and made all these down payments investments. What will there be for us? And we care deeply about it. We want to know, right? We want to have details. The accountant minds among us want to put an audit on the future to sort out. I've given this much I've earned this much. Those people, they've done this much, earned this much, deserve this much. We want to know. We want to be assured. And Jesus responds with this. What then will there be for us? Jesus answers them, and he answers them with assurance. Truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields, whew, starts to get kind of heavy, <laughs> for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But, and I think this is an interesting but, I think it's interesting, he uses that preposition, Many who are first will be last, and many who are last 
will be first. And then he tells them this parable to which we draw our primary attention this morning. And before I read it, I want to remind us all that Jesus, when he taught, <clears throat> he taught in parables, often at least. And sometimes he'd explain it, but he usually didn't surround his parables with a 45-minute sermon to try and, you know, rip the meat off of the bone. He'd just give you the parable and let it do what it does. And so regardless of what I say, hear the parable and let it do what it does for you. He said this to them, Jesus, what then will there be for us? He says, well, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius, which is what would be expected for a day's work, for the day, and he sent them into his vineyard. Think, early in the morning, right as the sun is rising up, right before the ninth hour. Because then in verse 3, about 9 in the morning, he went out and he saw others standing in the marketplace, doing nothing. How many of you are doing nothing at 9 in the morning today? Praise God. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went out. He went out again about noon, three hours later. So now we're six hours into the day already. And about three in the afternoon, nine hours into the day. And he did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, <clears throat> now typically a work day for, uh, I don't know what union laws were like. They're shifting in our culture for sure. But it would stop around 6 o'clock. was kind of the typical day. Around 5 in the afternoon, so one hour left in the day. And he's going to the market at 5, just to belabor this point. They have to get to his vineyard still. Who knows how long of a walk that is. He went out, and he found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing here all day long, doing nothing. <clears throat> well, no one's hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. What is a denarius? A full day's wages. So when those came who were hired first, all the way at something like six in the morning, they expected to receive even more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not 
being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So, Jesus says, the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Pretty good parable. You can imagine, right? <clears throat> How many of you have been working at a job for more than, say, 10 years? Just out of curiosity. Nobody in my generation works at the same job for more than two years. Uh, we hop and we jump and we skip. Uh, but what we found is if you move jobs a lot, you get paid more, right? <laughs> a lot better than the raises that you might get staying in the same job. And if you've been working in a spot for 10 years, maybe you've noticed this. It's very likely, actually, that somebody has come in underneath you and has been offered a higher wage than you have, despite your seniority. Yes? No? You've at least heard of this happening? It can be a little bit frustrating, can it not? It's not fair, you say. I deserve more. They deserve less. That's the seniority example, right? A way that we've all felt this. I've been around longer. There's also kind of a tribal example. Anyone familiar with how bonding work can be? Right? You take up a task with somebody. Um, our, our friend Ryan and his father are here, and they just described having to re-fence. We've got some fencers over here, so they know exactly what it's like. How challenging this work was. It can be bonding. It can be maddening as well, but can also be very bonding. You grow together in shared labor, right? Somebody else comes along and they receive the full fruits of your work, right? Well, that's an outsider. So you've got the seniority. You've also got this kind of tribalism that develops as you work throughout the day. I'm a big fan of The Mighty Ducks, one of my favorite movies, right? Gordon Bombay is not exactly a hero, kind of a tragic story. Um, but in this great classic piece of cinema, there's the underdog Mighty Ducks team, and they compete and fight, but they don't have the talent to win, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's a legal ruling, and the legal ruling makes one of the greatest players in the town, Banks, have to switch teams to their bad team, and even though, these, even though he's the best player in the city, they hate him. Why? Because he wasn't there when they started. <laughs> That's all it takes, right? That's all it takes. We can understand why these laborers of the field were frustrated and were angry. You can often almost hear them asking again, hey, hey, landowner, what was in this for me? If I could get just as much working later, why didn't I just come later? Or the refrain of the disciples, hey, what will there be in this for us? Right? Jesus doesn't shy away from this question. I think there's justice and there's reward both at play in this question. He doesn't shy away. He answers them. He says, hey, you'll get your reward. Hey, you'll get justice. But let me tell you a parable. And he tells this parable, and what he does with this parable is expose the twisted thinking of our brains. 
we've been conditioned to think wrongly about who God is, to think wrongly about how we approach our neighbor, to what, what we can do with the resources that God has been given us, given us generously. And this is what it comes down to. I said it at the beginning of service. Generosity. Generosity. The character of God. Jesus could have talked about anything, right? They ask about the end. They ask about the end of all things. Hey, what's in this for us? When all of this ends, what are we going to get? And Jesus says, look at the character of God. Look at the generosity of God. I think in our fleshly self, we don't really want the generosity of God. In our true selves, we do. But in our fleshly self, many of us don't. We'd rather win, right? Go blues. How's that make you feel? <laughs> right? I don't know. Do the Broncos have rivals? They're not good enough for that, are they? <laughs> wow. <laughs> We'd rather win than win with others, right? Push them in the dirt. There's not enough to go around. There's only one Super Bowl trophy, right? Only one Stanley Cup. And if you didn't win it soon enough, your name actually gets pulled off the bottom of it. <whistles> kind of tragic. We don't trust God to be gracious. We don't trust God to be generous. I only trust myself. I only trust my clan. I know if I work hard, I'll get what I deserve because I'm in control of these things. If I can audit out the future, if I can audit out my day, if I can audit out what is valuable, what is, uh, what is not valuable, where justice ought to be delivered, I can have control over the situation and I can put myself in the position of victory. That's our mindset. We don't want to trust the generosity of God. We want to know. We want to sort the details out. I've given this much. I've earned this much. They've done this much. They deserve this much. And whenever convenient, maybe I'll skew the numbers in my direction a little bit. And this thing called envy, this insidious thing called envy, starts to root its way into our souls. Are you envious because the Lord is generous? When you look around, and remember that the kingdom of heaven that we await in the new heaven and the new earth and the kingdom of heaven that Jesus began in his ministry here and gave us to live into and to work and to tend to have the same traits. They have the same characteristics. Are you envious because God is generous? Even today with others. Because if you are today, you will be then. When God says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. And friend, I will do you no wrong.
with. God's going to establish in us his eternal kingdom. The kingdom within, the kingdom without, the kingdom to come, all of the above. If he's going to establish it in us, we need to start today to live with this same mindset that Jesus Christ has, famous in Philippians chapter 2, right? Who, though he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of, but humbled himself to the form of a servant. We need to get out of the rat race that we have been corrupted to by the world. Henry Nouwen, a famous theologian and pastor, talks about the ladder, the ladder that we are all trying to climb to get to the top. And how do you get past somebody if they're on the same ladder as you? Well, you step on their hand, put your foot on their head, and you climb and you climb and you climb and you climb and you climb. And at the top of the ladder, the further up you get, the wobblier it is the whole thing comes crashing down. The vision of Christ is to work backwards. It's counterintuitive. To work down the ladder. Because if I don't trust the generosity of God, if I don't trust the goodness of God, if I don't trust the favor of the Lord, then I need to get to the top because I need to take care of mine. I need to store up as much as is possible. And I'm going, to be en- I'm going to be envious of those who've stored up more than me, right? Because they're in better shape than I am. But if I know the generosity of the Lord who called me, who went out to find me while I was doing nothing and going nowhere and said, hey, you, come work my field. If I trust his generosity, I'll have more than enough for the day. We treat the end... How does this help us read Revelation is the question, right? How does, this, how does this help us read the book of Revelation? How does this help us as we understand the end and live today? Well, we treat the end as we treat the middle, this middle that we're a part of, right? Jesus is teaching a transformation to our character from the onset so that it might stay through to the end, so that when all things are established new, envy And even, though I pray there are some form of sports in heaven, even competition, right? When we read Revelation, it's easy to get caught up, I think, in trying to discern the day, the details, the order of things. And this is actually important. Right? There's value there. Jesus, in telling the parable, tells exactly which part of the day the things happened. But the parable, in the parable, the laborers who got there first, by the end, are concerned with the hours and the times and themselves trying to calculate who gets justice and what amount of reward each person gets. Jesus tells the parable because those workers who got there first did not have their minds transformed again by the generosity of the vineyard owner. So how does this affect how we read Revelation? In many ways, the purpose of Revelation, and and, and Jesus, this isn't the whole story of, of what Jesus says in the New Testament about the end times. There's a lot more, and you've got to put the whole picture together. There's a lot more, but this is where he starts. This is where he starts. You want to know about the end? The first thing you know about is the generosity of God. 
all of the people who worked in the vineyard were nothing, were nobodies. Not a single one of them was forced to come into the vineyard. They were called, they responded, and they were given. This is the starting point of reading Revelation. I believe it is a picture of Jesus Christ. It is a picture of God. It is a picture of the one who rules so that regardless of the times and the days and the hours and how we ourselves would audit justice and reward, we know that God is generous. We know that God is just. In Matthew, the story continues. Through chapter 20, we hear this parable. Jesus talks about his death again. And then right after that, the mother of Zebedee, of Zebedee's sons, the sons of thunder, as they're sometimes called, she came to Jesus with her sons. She kneeled down and she asked him a favor. Jesus, Rabbi, what she said. Jesus asked, what is it you want? And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Fair enough request. You don't know what you're asking. Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Remember, he just told them about how he was going to go die. I don't think they get it yet. <laughs> Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. What a fascinating little thing. He tells this parable. The disciples are concerned with, what then will there be for us? Jesus doesn't say what? A denarius, that's what. You'll get a denarius, is that good enough? <laughs> Do you know that your father is generous? The mother, maybe she didn't hear the parable. We'll give her the benefit of the doubt. She comes to Jesus and she says, hey, I've got these sons. She's thinking, right? Maybe if I get there first and I ask before anybody else, I get priority, right? Get your little ticket at the DMV. She's trying to win the race. Can you put them at your right and your left? And Jesus is like, didn't you hear my parable? I don't even know. And I don't even care to know. Why am I not concerned with who's going to sit where in heaven, Jesus says? Because my Father's preparing. Because my Father is preparing. And I don't need to know anything else. Now, question for you. Does Jesus know more than just that detail? Who, who gave the revelation? Yeah, he knows a lot more. He might not know the specifics of that question. He knows plenty more. But what is most important of first priority when the disciples and their parents begin concerned with the question, what's for us? He says, your father is preparing a place for you and he's generous. 
everything else will fall into place. I've given this much. I've earned this much. They've done this much. They deserve this much. These are the questions of envy. And we rid ourselves of them. Instead, ask the question of God's character. And ask the question of how your character is being transformed into his likeness. Am I being made generous? Think of how simple the story could have been. Much more boring, but much better if the workers who went their first thing in the morning got paid exactly what their work was worth, a generous offering, saw the generosity of the father and said, wow, this is a generous vineyard owner. I need to bring my friends to work here tomorrow. The last will be first, and the first will be last. Our victory in the cross, humble, lowly, grateful. Our victory true in Christ. Our victory true throughout the book of, the, of Revelation. What we will have is that victory, not according to our doing, not according to our labors, not according to whether or not we were first, not according to whether or not we were better than others, but according to the generosity of God. It's not the accomplishment of man. And this frees us, I pray, to rest. This frees us, I pray, to love. And this frees us, I pray, in this present moment where thorns, where ice and snow, the pains of childbirth still exist. Lord, I pray that this frees us to be loved even as we rest in the midst of these labors. Invite the band back up. Let's continue to pray for just a moment. As is typical for us, we have a prayer team and elders who will come forward, and many of you may be experiencing, and I pray that you are, because the conviction of the Holy Spirit is the grace of God an awareness of your envy. An awareness of your belief that God is not trustworthy with his generosity. And I ask you to reckon with your envy by throwing it away. Come, seek prayer. Come, seek help. Come that we might share one another's burdens. Or stay in your seat and pray as you need. But Father, I ask your spirit to come to blow over these souls, these hearts and these bodies and give us even now a deeper revelation of your generosity, of your character. Lord, and as we read about the end, might it be your character that we see through and through that we could celebrate everything that you do instead of calling it into question. Your word is true, Lord, not mine. God, you put an audit on my life and recount for me my wrongdoings and my righteousness, Lord. And I praise you for that. And I praise you that your son's righteousness has covered over me, that when I stand before you, 
I can receive your grace and your goodness and your affirmation as a son, as a daughter. Lord, it's not me who audits you, who determines whether your ways are true, whether your ways are false, whether your ways are good enough for me. God, put me in my right place of gratitude and of thankfulness. You who gave me breath, who gave me life, and who gave me grace, who found me on the side of the road with nothing and nothing to do, and put me to work in a field, in a vineyard, So as the music plays and the spirit convicts, let's continue to pray. God, I also pray for those in this room who are feeling the call to come work the field. Knowing Jesus Christ, knowing that it's never too late, that even at the very last hour, there's more than enough time to receive the fullness of your reward. God, I pray that these might come forward and receive this call to work your field. Lord, I thank you for those who are in this building who have been working since the earliest hour and who are not like the grumbling laborers, but who continue to invite, who continue to call forward others, and who continue to work hard. God, I pray that your voice of thankfulness and of pride in them would ring loud and clear in their ears. God, for those of us who feel like we need to get there first to something or another, maybe it's even a call to ministry that we're feeling, Lord. Help us to slow down. Help these to rest in your generosity and let the grace 
of God flow through them in their trust in your grace, not in their speed. We're going to continue to pray for a while. Would, would all of us stand to our feet? If you'd like to remain in the sanctuary as we worship and pray, please do. Father, thank you for calling us to your harvest and looking out at these laborers that you've called, Lord. Would you bless them as they go? Would you look down upon them and would your face shine brightly upon them as they go? And Lord, would they know in the depths of their soul your goodness and your generosity? Knowing that whatever they ask in your name, Jesus, they'll receive. Knowing that you know what we need before we even ask. God, I pray that in every lack, in every suffering, and in every joy, and in every excess, we would know that you are God. And we would know that through Jesus Christ, we belong to you. So go in the goodness and in the grace and in the generosity of Jesus Christ. <laughs>